Well, good morning, Soul City. How are we doing? Good, good. My name is Jeannie. I'm one of our lead pastors, and I am excited for us to conclude our series, Rethinking Resistance. And I love that question that Sean just asked us to, to answer to one another because, man, I had so many different things I wanted to be when I was growing up. It was not just one. There were many. I went through a lot of different phases. I remember going through the phase where I wanted to be a, a Broadway dancer and singer and performer. Anybody else? Yeah, there's a few others in the house. And, and so I literally took every opportunity to turn anything and everything into a performance. Um, I would have backyard plays, and I was, of course, the producer, the director, the lead actress. I even charged for tickets, which, you know, I guess I was an early businesswoman. Uh, so th I went through that phase. Then there was the phase where I wanted to be a teacher when I grew up. This was in third grade, and I had an amazing teacher. And so I would come home, and I would want to be a teacher just like my favorite teacher, Miss Loth. And I remember my parents uh, saw me, uh, you know, pretending to be a teacher every day. And so they decided for Christmas one year to get me a chalkboard. And they hung it up in the basement. And I had my own little uh, schoolhouse down there. And so I would come home after school and have my own classes and everything. And my brothers weren't into that phase of my life as much um, because I made them attend my school. Uh, after they attended school, and, and they didn't like it so much. They were tardy a lot. They sometimes didn't even show up, so I held them back uh, a year. <laughs> we had to work that out in counseling later, but uh, so there was the phase of that, and then there is my current destination, what I do, and my current destination, being a pastor, uh, I never wanted to be this when I was little. I never thought that this was the direction that God was going to take me in. It was not something I thought I would do or be when I grew up. And it was forged and it was formed through a lot of unexpected experiences. Uh, it started out as a quiet whisper, which then led into a full-fledged calling into vocational ministry and Year after year, I just began to follow the path that, if I'm honest, it was often very fuzzy, uh, very unclear, uh, but it was the path that I sensed I was to walk. And I will say my current destination, where I am at today in my life, the only reason I am here is because of a whole lot of redirection, a whole lot of redirection occurring in my life. I think most of us, we, we kind of have this sense that, you know, if we just take our good desires and we add good self-discipline to that, it's going to lead us to a good destination, right? And, and then you, you add, if you're in a relationship with God there, you think, okay, well, I'll take my good desires, my good self-discipline, and God will spiritually direct those things, and I'll be in a great destination, and I'll tell you, you know, even though I have walked with God for many, many years, and I consciously know that God does not put us on some kind of holy people mover to get us where we want to be, and he makes sure that there is nothing hard or hurtful along the path, uh, I think there was a part of me that still kind of hoped that my path would feel like a path that felt like the promised land all along the way. 
that I would just kind of have this life trajectory and it would be filled with milk and honey being dropped from God all along the way. And if not milk and honey, at least carbs without calories, right? (laughs) That this would be like how the life with God would go. In my mind, I kind of pictured it a bit like this, and maybe you're similar to me. I kind of hoped that there was a clear start, there was a clear finish, and the path just kind of looked like that. Really clear, really specific. Um, Go this way, go that way, not too many detours, not too many, you know, side highways that you're supposed to take. And, And this was kind of what I hoped the journey looked like. But I then began to realize that the race you finish is often not the race you started. The race you finish is often not the race you start. Who you thought you would be when you were young is very rarely who you have become when you're older. The way you thought life would go is rarely how it actually goes. The thing you thought would maybe never happen to you is now the central plot of your life. That's because the race you finish is often not the race you start. And my journey, I will tell you, has included multiple detours, multiple redirections, straight up highways being closed sometimes. And God's saying, there's a new path. My spiritual journey has included many redirections. And if I'm honest, every time I have faced one of those redirections, I felt resistance. I felt resistance because I wanted this. This is what I wanted. And every time there was a redirection, it was a struggle. It was a fight. It was often a disappointment. At times I felt confused, even scared. Like, God, how would you lead me this far into this thing? And now it's totally different. I mean, for me, my life has looked a little bit more like this. There was a start, you know, and and I kind of started like this. And, you know, then there was some plateaus and Then there was a serious drop, and I just started swirling and swirling and swirling and swirling. I'm like, God, this is hard. Really hard. Am I ever going to get out of this? And then, you know, there was some relief and maybe up and, oh, wait, backwards now, God? Wait, I don't understand. This doesn't seem like it's true north. Why are we going this direction? And then this, and then this, and then it got all jagged and crazy. And then he said, go start a church. And I was like, what? (laughs) You got to be kidding me. And my life, I don't know about yours, but mine has looked a whole lot more like this. So many redirections. So many redirections. And oftentimes, redirections, they can be big, they can be small. You get a new job, and you're so excited, and then you get to that job, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst job ever, (laughs) right? I I, I can't stand these people. I don't even want to work with them. What was I thinking? You walk through a breakup, a divorce, a relationship that was really meaningful to you, 
changes. Unexpected health reality. A loss. There are all different kinds of redirections. In fact, you might be here today and you are in the middle of one. You might be in this city because of it. And my intuition about you is that when a redirection shows up in your life, you don't tend to throw a welcome party for it. You don't tend to go out and buy a dozen balloons and your favorite cupcakes and say, welcome redirection, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that now my life is headed in an entirely different direction. And that's the question I want us to wrestle with today. I want us to wrestle with the question of, are you resisting a redirection? Are you resisting putting a block to a redirection in your life? Are you holding on to what was? Are you holding on to how you thought it should be? Are you holding on to something that God may very clearly be inviting you to let go of? And what if God, what if God was more at work in the redirection than you ever thought, than you ever thought? So we're going to dive into the Bible. Are you ready? We're going to dive into a great story. You don't sound ready. Are you ready? All right. So I want you to open up to the Old Testament. We're going to go all the way to the left to the book of Exodus. Okay, the book of Exodus, Exodus 17. The last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of Moses. We're going to conclude with the life of Moses. And as you are turning to Exodus 17, it's found on page 58. We're going to look at three turning point moments in the life of Moses, specifically having to do with his staff. Moses carried a staff around throughout his life. And we're going to look at three turning point moments in the life of Moses having to do with this staff, this wooden stick that he carried around. So all three of them are in the first five books of the Bible, which is also known as the Pentateuch. And what the Pentateuch means is five books, five scrolls. You can tell somebody at work tomorrow, do you know what the Pentateuch is? It's the first five books of the Bible. You'll seem like a Bible scholar, okay? (laughs) So as you're turning to Exodus, uh, hopefully you're there, I just want to give you a few moments from the highlight reel in Moses' life. Moses, later in his life, had a ton of redirections, a ton of redirections, and he found himself as a shepherd. So what does any good shepherd have? They have a shepherd's staff, right? So Moses had this shepherd's staff. It was a big wooden stick to help him herd his flock. And one day Moses was up on the mountain with his sheep. He saw a bush burning, but it was not burning up. And God began to speak to Moses through that bush. Now, if I was Moses, I would have been afraid. And he was also afraid. And Moses was not just afraid. What incited inside of Moses was a deep feeling of unworthiness. A deep feeling of unworthiness. So God is speaking to Moses. And as God is speaking to Moses, God invites him to go back to Egypt and to speak to Pharaoh to let the Israelites free from captivity. And God saw that Moses was worried about this. God even, you know, said to Moses, okay, you know, did I not give you your mouth to speak? 
I will give you what you need. God's looking at Moses. He sees the staff in his hand, and he said, go with your brother Aaron and the staff in your hand, and I will reveal my promises. I will reveal my power. Okay? This happens. Moses goes back. God uses the staff in miraculous ways. The staff becomes a snake at one moment, which for me, I'd be like, I'm out. I cannot, I cannot fulfill this journey, God, right? So the staff becomes a snake. At one point, a whole bunch of plagues come onto the Egyptians, and it's through Moses using the staff. Another point, he takes the staff, he literally puts it in the sea, and the sea parts. And so Moses had become accustomed to God using this staff and revealing his power. So here we are, Exodus 17, at yet another moment where Moses uses his staff. It says Exodus 17, verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, which for the record is now Las Vegas, okay? <laughs> Traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded, they camped at Reptim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test. So right off the bat, you can see the Israelites and Moses, they have a strained relationship. The definition, it was complicated, right? And so clearly the Israelites had gotten on the last nerve of Moses. Move on to verse 3. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, here's what I want you to do. Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now I want you to look really closely at the instructions that God gave to Moses in verse 5. The instructions were clear. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I'll stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, water will come out of it for the people to drink. God's direction, pretty clear, isn't it? It's pretty clear. He says, the same way that you used the staff to strike the Nile, I want you to do that again. Take the staff and now strike the rock and water will come out of it for my people. And just like God promised, it happened. He took the staff, he struck the rock, water comes out, and the people have what they want. Israelites are relieved. They had what they most wanted, what they most needed, and yet again, God fulfills a promise, doesn't he? But water coming out of the rock was not the only promise. Did you catch the other promise in the passage? God said, I will stand there before you. God promised his presence. 
Now, this is significant because I believe this is God revealing his heart to Moses. I believe it is God saying, Moses, I will take care of your needs. I will take care of the needs of my people. I will provide. I will be faithful. I will forgive when you forget me, but I don't want to just be your promise provider. I want you to experience my presence. I want you to experience my presence. Now this moment, I believe, was a foreshadowing of the journey that was ahead for Moses and for the Israelites. Because clearly at this rock, there is a redirection occurring, isn't there? There's a redirection occurring in Moses' story. There's a redirection occurring in the Israelites' story. God provided something, and so they had probably been in the swirly yuck, right? And then God provided something. There's a redirection that occurs here. But it's God saying to Moses very clearly, I want a relationship with you. I don't want to just do things for you. I want to be with you. I don't want to just be this God that you come to when you need me to, to show my power and, and show my provision and answer all the promises. I want a relationship with you, Moses. That's why he said, and I will be with you. I will be with you. But I think what happened in Moses' story and the Israelites' story is they began to pursue God because of his promises and the promised land, not because of his presence. Because what they became desperate for was the promised land. They were desperate for this place that God said to them, you need to go here and there will be milk and honey. They became desperate for the promises, not the presence. And God longs for us to experience his presence. And when we pursue anything other than that, he lovingly redirects us. He lovingly redirects us. It's because God knows that your desperation determines your, determines your direction. Your desperation, it is going to determine your direction. Just look at it in the Israelites' life. They wanted water. They were desperate for water. They wanted food. They were desperate for food. They wanted the journey to be over. They wanted comfort. They wanted relief. They wanted solutions to their problems. They wanted answers to their questions. Now, none of these things are bad, but it was all they were looking for. They were looking for God to do something. They were not looking to be with God. What they wanted was what they could see. What they wanted was a life like this. They were uninterested in a life of redirection. So that determined their direction. They wandered around looking for water. They wandered around looking for comfort. They wandered around looking for reliefs to their problems. They were not wandering around looking for God. And I wonder today, what have you become desperate for? 
What have you most become desperate for in your life? What is it that you most want? What is it that you go to God for? Do you want relief? Do you want comfort? Do you want him to make it easier? Do you want him to just do the things so that you can live this life? You want him to just make your will his will? Now listen, those aren't bad things. There's many days where I want those things too. But if they are all you are looking for, you most certainly will miss the presence of God. You will most certainly miss the presence of God. Now what's amazing is as we turn back to the story of Moses for a moment, some 40 years later. I want you to turn over to Numbers 20 now. And Moses finds himself in a strikingly familiar destination. Numbers 20, page 123. We're going to start at verse 1, and this is what it says. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin. They were finally out of the desert of Sin, and they were in the desert of Zin now. And they stayed at Kadesh, and there Miriam died and was buried. Miriam was Moses' sister. Uh, She was significant in the exodus out of Egypt. Now there was no water for the community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you even bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? That we and our livestock should now die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain. It has no figs. It has no grapevines or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Sound familiar? The same complaint. 40 years later, and they're still desperate for the same thing. Their desperation has led them in the same direction. They're still desperate for the same thing. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Why did you set us free only to enter into a different captivity as we wander around now in the wilderness? Can you imagine what it must have been like to be Moses in that moment? I mean, after all the miracles, after all the provision, after all of the answered promises, after all the redirections where they saw the Lord, And here they are again. The people of Israel wanted what they wanted. They were clear on where they wanted to be. And where they wanted to be was without a redirection in their life. And in many ways, I think Moses wanted the same thing. They wanted God to make good on his promises and to get them to the promised land. You said you were going to get us to the promised land. Get us to the promised land. It goes on, verse 6. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. 
So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels. He got very salty later in his life. Listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm, and he struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough. Because you did not trust in me enough. Because you did not trust in my presence to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now, I can only imagine this moment for Moses. Talk about a redirection. Talk about a redirection. God flipped the whole script. He said, I'm changing the finish line. The place that you have been desperate for your whole life, the direction you have been in your whole life, changed. God had called him. God even told him to do this. But God shifted the destination. God said, you will not enter the promised land. Now, do you remember what Moses was most afraid to do back at the burning bush? He was most afraid to speak. He was most afraid to speak. That's what he said back to God. God, I can't speak. I'm not even good at speaking, right? God said, I've given you a mouth to speak, and I want you to take the staff, take your brother, and I'm going to reveal my power. What is the thing that God invites Moses to do at the rock some 40 years later? To speak to the rock. To speak to the rock, and water will come out. Some 40 years later, the very thing that Moses was afraid to do was what God was inviting him yet again to do. He didn't need the staff anymore. He didn't need to demonstrate the power of God by striking the rock with his staff. God said it would happen just if he spoke. But Moses had grown attached to a different way of living and leading. He had grown so attached to what he was desperate for. Attached to his way. To his will. And God said, you did not trust in me enough. And I, oh, I so get this story in a whole new way in my life. Over the last couple of years, I have been a part of a spiritual community that was about two and a half years long and 
um, just to learn how to, to live and lead and um, experience the deeper uh, river of Jesus, essentially. Learn how to be a spiritual director. And so every quarter, I went away for three days of solitude and turned off my phone and turned in my laptop. Most of the time, I felt like I was walking into prison. Um, and God, of course, met me every single time. Last August 2017, well, I guess two Augusts ago now, about a year and a half ago, um, I was on my solitude retreat. It was a beautiful day, beautiful afternoon, and I felt God just so lovingly say, Jeannie, I want you to go to the chapel. I want you to bring your Bible. I want you to read from Numbers 20. Now, lest you think that every single morning I wake up and there's an email in my inbox from the Lord that says, Good morning, daughter. You look stunning today. Here's the passage I want you to read. That has never happened in my life, okay? God and I are not communicating through emails, but it was a strong impression, if you understand what I mean. I just felt God very clearly saying, go and read this passage. So I did. I, I went into this little chapel. There wasn't anybody there. And I opened up Numbers 20, and I read this story. And as I got to the part where it said that God spoke to Moses and said, you do not trust in me enough. I felt the spirit of God so profoundly pressing on my chest in that moment and saying, Jeannie, you do not trust in me enough. You strike the rock in your life and you don't need to strike it anymore and I sat in that little chapel all alone and I will tell you I wept like a weeping uncontrollably because I know I just know that it was the spirit of God that was speaking to me and, and I knew that it was true. I knew that I had learned how to strike the rock in my life. And it wasn't always a bad thing. It was actually part of who God had made me to be, to be a leader and, and to take distance and to, to call people towards something. But I had been striking the rock and God was saying, you don't need to strike it anymore. My presence is enough. And I had learned and I had grown attached to what it was like to strike the rock in my life, in my leadership, in my relationships. I knew how to stay in control. I knew how to make life function on my terms. I knew how to direct my intensity so that things would move in the way that I wanted them to move. I knew how to take my will and actually make it look like God's will. And God was just so clearly saying, no more. No more striking of the rock for you. Over and out. You're done living that way. Well, wouldn't you know, um, about a week later, we went to go visit some friends in Michigan, in this uh, upper state of Michigan, in this little quiet town, and um, 
they're, they're really close friends, and so I was telling them about what had happened in the little chapel and how God had spoken to me and how I was trying to figure out what does it mean to not strike the rock in my life? What, what does that even mean, God? I, I don't know if I know how to live like that. And wouldn't you know, later that afternoon, uh, we went over to the little town square, and they are having a little art fair. And we walk into the art fair, and the very first vendor was selling staffs. And I knew it was the Lord, because he was set up right next to the kettle corn machine. <laughs> and and I, I, I was like, God, oh my gosh, what, what are you doing? And that same feeling that I felt when I was in that chapel, I felt the Lord just say, go and buy a staff, genie, And wrap your hands around it so you know what it feels like to strike the rock. Because what I'm going to invite you to do is to lay the staff down. So I bought a staff. And this is my staff. And this staff has been with me for the last year and a half. Staff has ridden in many Ubers. It has gone to lots of meetings. It's gone out to dinner. Jared asked that I not bring it to bed, so I, I honored that. I told our elder team about it, and I confessed to them and said, I'm a leader that strikes the rock, and I don't want to lead this church striking the rock. I want to lay it down. I don't want to go to God for his promises. I want his presence. I'm more interested in his presence than anything else. I'm more interested in his presence than his power. I'm more interested in his presence than his provision. I'm more interested in his presence than him fulfilling his promises for this church. What I want is his presence, and that's how I want to live and I want to lead. I told our staff team about it. There were many times I had to bring the staff out and bring it into meetings and apologize and say, I struck the rock. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Um, you know, it was interesting when I was leaving Michigan and I had my staff, um, I felt God very clearly say to me, Jeannie, do not preach on this. Because you know what pastors like to do? They like to have one moment with God and then go and tell everybody else how to have that moment with God. And God said, do not try to turn what I am doing in you into something that I'm going to do through you. And so I have just been hanging out with the staff for the last year and a half, learning how to pursue God's presence instead of his promises. And then Jarrett said, hey, I'd really like you to teach in this series, and I'd like you to teach on redirection and kind of like, you know, like the presence and the promise and all the stuff that you've been going through, you know, like your staff kind of thing that you've been doing. Um, 
And that same impression came over me. God said, you've been faithful. You can talk about it. Listen, I still like to strike the rock. I have not graduated into some holy of holy presence space. Um, I still very much like to strike the rock. I still very much like to force my will into being God's will. And just for the record, forcing your will is not God's will. If anybody's wondering, that is not God's will. Because when you strike the rock, it's a way of saying, God, I want your promises and I want them on my terms. And I want your promises more than I want your presence in my life. But I'll be honest with you, over the last year and a half, one of the biggest tensions that I have had with what God has been doing in me is the tension of how he left Moses in that moment. And he said, you will not enter the promised land. And there's a part of me that was like, God, that's just straight up mean. Like, come on, throw him something. Like, he's been so faithful. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I want to take you to the end of Moses' life. And this is where God has led me. Um, And it so overwhelms me. Um, In Deuteronomy 34, it says, Then the Lord said to him, meaning Moses, Moses, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. And I've let you see it with your eyes, but you're not going to cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. And I thought, God, I don't understand you. I mean, this feels so confusing. Like, here's Moses actually seeing the promised land. You had him, he was 120 years old, and he had to climb to the top of a mountain. And you showed him the promised land, and you still said, but you won't cross over into it. But I want to tell you, over the last year or so, it has become more and more clear to me. Because what probably felt like a straight rejection to Moses. I mean, I can only imagine that he received that as a rejection, wouldn't you? That it was protection in the form of redirection. That Moses actually didn't need to enter the promised land because the presence of God had now become his promised land. Because did you notice what was missing up there on that mountain? The staff wasn't there anymore. The thing that Moses had become so accustomed to, the thing that he had wrapped his hands around, the thing that he became desperate for, he didn't need at the end of his life because the promised land to Moses was God's presence. It wasn't a physical destination. It was a way of living. It was a way of being. And when we dwell in presence, we don't need a promised land. When we dwell in the presence of God, we don't need milk and honey. 
because we're in the very presence of God. And I believe Moses was okay to never get to the promised land because he had experienced intimacy with the promise provider. He had the presence of God, so he didn't need to be in a physical destination. And I simply want to ask you today, do you want God or do you want his promises? Do you want God? Do you want his presence? Or do you just want his promises? Do you just want him because what he's going to do for you? Because the way he's going to answer your prayers, the way he's going to provide for you, because God is an amazing promise provider. He is. He will give strength to the weary. When we put our hope in him, he will renew us. When you pass through the waters, he'll be with you. When you're in a fiery moment, you are not going to be burned up. God promises that if you lack wisdom, he'll give it to you. When you ask, he promises that he will forgive you of your sins and purify you and make you right. Those things are true. God's promises, though, are what he does. His presence is where he is. His presence is where he is. It's who he is. And here's the thing about God. God does not owe us promises. He doesn't owe you those promises. And he's not interested in us just coming to him for the promise. Just coming to him for the blessing. He loves you. He loves you. And he just wants to be with you. He just wants to be with you, and he wants you to want the same, to be people that will say, God, nothing else, nothing else but your presence. Nothing else. It's what I want. It's what I'm desperate for. Nothing else, God, but your presence. So I simply want to ask you, do you want God? Do you want God's presence? Or has your life been all about getting his promises? And I believe today he is inviting us in to experience, to experience the manifestation of his presence. It's here. It's for you. It's always with you. You actually can't leave the presence of God. It's just that so often we live unaware of it, only wanting God for his promises and not his presence. And so I want to invite us into a time actually of confession. So I want to invite you to just even close your eyes and Open your hands. You know, there may be a shift that is occurring in your story, a redirection. There may be twists in the terrain and disappointment and defeat. And perhaps in the midst of it all, you have forgotten the presence of God. 
You've come to God just for his blessings and his promises. But it has been a long time since you have been caught up in his holy presence. In his holy presence. And so right now, I just want to invite us in. And if that's you, I just want to invite you to say, God, I'm sorry. Jesus, I confess that I have built a relationship with you and what you can do for me instead of just being with you. Jesus, I'm sorry for going through the motions. I'm sorry for wanting you to just be somebody that provides and makes good on your promises. Jesus, would you take me back to where it all started? Would you take me back to your grace and would you take me back to your love and would you take me back to your mercy and would you take me back to that place, Jesus, where I wanted nothing else but you, nothing else but you, Jesus. And in your own words, just invite God to reveal the power of his presence to you. And Jesus, we pray right now that you would create a holy space here. And we want nothing else. Nothing else, Jesus. Nothing else but you. And I pray, Spirit, that you would move, that you would convict, that you would... You would literally invite us into a deeper stream of awareness of how your presence is moving in our lives, God. If there's something that we need to let go of, would you help us let go of it? If there's something we need to lay down, would you help us lay it down? And Jesus, would you draw us in? Would you draw us in deeper? And God, would we become a people that say nothing else, nothing else, nothing else but Jesus?